Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Detroit Pad Boys podcast. This week, we have a special guest, Ricky O'Donnell um, from SB Nation. He actually was covering the Team USA practice today. So we'll talk a little bit about Andre Drummond uh, and how he's doing and, and his chances to make the final team. Uh, Ricky, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you, Matt? Pretty good. And joining us, we also have the famous Mike Payne and Kevin Sawyer from Detroit Bad Boys. How's it going, Mike? Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. Absolutely. Kevin, how are things going with you? Uh, fantastic. I love podcasts. <laughs> Don't we all? Yes, yeah, so let's just dive right into this. So, Ricky, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what was going on today? It, this this wasn't quite uh, as organized of a, an intra-squad scrimmage like uh, uh, we saw in Vegas uh, last week, but why don't you just tell us a little bit about what, what happened today and, and, in particular, some of your impressions of Andre Drummond. Well, I personally thought it was a pretty surreal setup. Uh, this gym that they hosted it at, it's on the west side of Chicago, it has a lot of uh, high-profile basketball events. They'll have the McDonald's All-American practices there. They'll have the NBA draft combine there. But this was the first time I've been there with actual NBA players. And to just be so close to all those guys uh, and have them competing very hard against each other in a private setting, it was a bit surreal. Um, sort of unlike anything I've ever been around before. Basically, as soon as the media was allowed into the practice, Coach K closed off the first hour of practice made that private, then the media was allowed in. As soon as we got settled, uh, there was a scary moment where DeMarcus Cousins, Rudy Gay, and Kenneth Fareed were all sort of fighting for a loose ball, and Cousins fell down hard, and it looked bad uh, initially. He was grabbing his right knee. He limped off the floor pretty quickly and went to the trainer's table, but definitely for a second, I think everyone looked at each other and thought, oh, damn, there's an ACL tear. You'd hear a pin drop in that place uh, after that injury. And I'm not sure what the extent of Cousins' injury is at the moment. I believe he has an MRI scheduled for tomorrow where they'll probably find out more. But especially after, I think, you know, the residual effect of Paul George's injury in the back of all these players' minds, that was just such a ridiculous way to open up, uh, you know, the scrimmage portion of the practice today. And the coaches did not hesitate to cut that short. After Cousins' injury, they probably went for maybe 10, 15 minutes more. It seemed like they did have more time scheduled to practice, but instead they were just working on some individual drills uh, in separate groups throughout the practice facility, and then they met with the media a little longer than they probably were supposed to. So I was looking at your Twitter timeline after after the injury happened. Um, you said that maybe it didn't look quite as bad after he went over to the trainer's table uh, than it did initially. Yeah, I mean, who's to say, really, the severity of the injury? I, as a scarred Bulls fan, I remember Derrick Rose limping off the floor in Portland last year after he tore his meniscus pretty much immediately. And, you know, Rose tore his ACL and his meniscus both on non-contact plays, and neither of them looked very serious. Uh, Cousins, when he went down immediately, I thought it looked bad. It was sort of like a moment of panic uh, between everyone it would fell so silent in that gym. Uh, but then he got off the floor and the practice continued. And Cousins was just sitting up on a table with ice on his knee. So I'm not going to speculate on the severity of the injury, but hopefully it's not too bad. I think that if it would have been really serious, like a torn ACL or something, it probably would have been uh, a bit more dramatic, I guess, in terms of like helping him get off the floor and getting to the trainer's table. So hopefully DeMarcus is okay, but... You know, Andre Drummond replaced him, and they just went on with the scrimmage. I, I'm curious a little bit just about your overall impressions of Drummond after he got in. I, I, I read a, 
some account of, of how he played from, from Keith Langeloy from uh, Pistons.com, and it said that he made a couple of good plays against uh, Plumlee. So if it, you know, if this ends up being a type of injury that keeps Cousins from, uh, you know, whether it's severe enough that it actually prevents him from playing or maybe it just scares him to the point where he, he chooses not to continue playing, you know, I'm just kind of curious how Drummond looked to you and, and if you think that, you know, maybe he, he might be able to make the, the final cut to 12. So pretty much as soon as Drummond came in, uh, you know, it went back and forth a couple times, and then he got the ball at the free throw line, and there was no one in the paint but Plumlee. Plumlee took a step back, and Drummond just charged at him, drilled Plumlee, who tried to take the charge and converted an and one. Uh, And my first impression of that is that Plumlee is the bravest man in the world if you're going to sit there and try to take a charge in front of Andre Drummond, who even in a room full of massive athletes is the biggest person you've ever seen, really. There's no one who can even compare with just the sheer mass of Andre Drummond. Uh, So for Plumlee to, you know, take the charge on that, I thought that was pretty wild. Drummond did look good on both ends of the floor. Really, uh... The way that Drummond just moves up and down and is able to get off the floor is pretty wild. You don't see people as big as he is having the mobility that he has. Obviously, his mobility and his athleticism is what makes it special. But when you're up close in a private setting like that, it really is kind of jarring, even when he's surrounded by uh, the best players in the world. In terms of him making the team, I sort of doubt that that's going to happen. But we have to remember there's only four cuts left. Uh, Coach K did announce today that DeMarcus Cousins will not play in the scrimmage on Saturday, or the exhibition game, I'm sorry, on Saturday against Brazil. So, you know, now I think the thinking would be that maybe it opens up a spot for Plumlee, but who knows? You know, Drummond will be in that mix too, and Drummond would certainly seem to have better ability to bang down low with Spain when they're going against Marcus and Pagasol and everyone else on Spain. So. It'll be interesting to see. I think Drummond is definitely a good candidate. I believe that he's still like 21 years old, so he's going to be in the program for a long time, as long as he wants to be. And he'll be a candidate for the 2016 team, regardless of whether or not he makes this squad. I think the general impression of Drummond so far between the people around Team USA has been very positive. Yeah, that's really good to hear. And, and it's funny the way you phrase that. He, you know, he, He's still 21. In fact, he just turned 21 this past week, so it's... You know, especially since he's entering his third year in the league, it's really easy to forget uh, just how young he is. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm actually pretty excited just to, you know, even just his chances to compete right now in, in these scrimmages, just to get that experience going against the, the league's elite, the rest of the league's elite players. You know, he obviously has a lot, a lot that he could learn uh, just from this whole experience, and especially if he goes on to, to make the final cuts. But, I mean, I, I guess that kind of begs the question, especially – you know, this was on the back of my mind uh, from after seeing the the absolutely horrific Paul George injury, and then hearing about the the, the scare with Demarcus Cousins. You know, I, I'm curious. You know, as Pistons fans, uh, I'll start with you, Mike. As Pistons fan, should Pistons fans really want Drummond to make the team? Yes, there's a lot to learn from the experience, but there's obviously a lot to lose in terms of the the potential for injury. What's your take on that? Well, I think there's always something to lose, uh, no matter what games these, these players are playing, um, especially in the summer. But I would actually much prefer Drummond spend his time with Team USA than, you know, the Pro-Am tournaments you see a lot of guys like Kevin Durant, even Brandon Jennings playing during the summer. In these environments, you've got athletic staff right there uh, prepared to handle these situations as they happen, um, as opposed to, you know, the Pro-Am circuit where who knows, you know, how long until a player is going to get professional treatment from 
um, you know, somebody like an Arnie Kander or, or otherwise. So I think in terms of risk, I would assume that playing for Team USA would pose the, the least risk compared to some of these other tournaments that these players are going to play in during the summer. So in terms of risk for reward, I'd love for him to have that experience. I think it can really help his game and his confidence. Although, judging from his confidence, I don't think he needs any more than he already has. He's, he's quite, a, quite a formidable player. But, uh, yeah, I think I'd be okay with him playing on the team. Um, I think that the only way to prevent anything like that from happening is actually teams taking you know, a role in stopping these players playing from any tournaments outside of the NBA, outside of regulation. You know, just kind of riffing off of that, I saw today that, that Rudy Gay pointed out that part of the reason that he ended up joining the team, it, it was also it was, it was the Kings' ownership that basically encouraged him to campaign a little bit for a spot. You know, he was a, he was a late addition, so that's kind of interesting, just because of the difference of, you know, obviously uh, Mark Cuban has been one of the more vocal, one of the more vocal NBA owners opposing the participation of his players in this, but then you have a, a situation of an owner from the Kings basically encouraging the players to play. Perhaps, you know, there's little, they're in a little bit different spot in terms of just being able to market their players uh, in terms of, you know, league visibility. But, yeah, Kevin, what's your take on this? Well, I'm inclined to agree with Mike. I think that uh, it, it is good experience, but I, the fact is professional basketball players are going to play a lot of basketball. They're going to play in the offseason. They're going to work out. And if you look at the risk of injury, there is – probably just as much risk of injury if a player just takes the summer off, doesn't do his proper conditioning, and then tries to come back and deal with the rigors of the NBA. So it, it, it can equal out in terms of that. And just from a fan perspective, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of basketball. I'm a fan of the Pistons because I want to see Pistons players. I enjoy watching them. So the nominal risk of injury, and I do think it's relatively nominal, I think sort of lightning is striking twice here it hasn't happened historically that often i think there might be a little bit of due diligence on the part of coaches to say you know are they taking proper precautions are these practices being run the right way my i'm almost certain they are but i think in terms of his participation i'd certainly rather see it than not and i'd rather see the united states win which i think is more likely to happen if Andre Drummond gets minutes than if someone else gets minutes. Yeah, I, th- I think I agree with all of you guys. You know, like I said, that there's just so much to be learned from from overall experience, and the conditions are are so much more well monitored than, than a lot of these other uh, pro ams and, and charity uh, charity tournaments. So, you know, overall, I think it's 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 a good thing. It's a net positive, even with the, the risk of injury. Injuries just they usually don't happen. But but yeah, in the back of my mind, you know, especially from after Paul George, like it's just one of those things that man, that would just be a devastating blow to the franchise. But it, you can't really think about that because chances are these players are going to be playing. Although Ricky, I did find this interesting. I saw one of the quotes. Maybe you heard it. Uh, I believe it was from today from from Derek Rose saying that one of the reasons he likes the the Team USA is that he actually doesn't play pickup ball ever. Uh, I, I thought that was a little interesting. Yeah, that's something I've been complaining about for years at this point, really. Uh, it's one of those bizarre ticks that Rose has that he will not play pickup ball ever unless it's with Team USA. Last time Rose played with Team USA was in the 2010. Uh, that's before it was called the FIBA World Cup. I believe it was called the World Championships then. And then Rose came back the next season and won MVP. Uh, but that was sort of a problem I thought last year with Rose was that 
before he got to training camp, he literally didn't play any real basketball at all. He'll work very hard in the summer, but he just does drills and conditioning and lifting. Uh, and he won't play, like, actual five-on-five games. So, as a Bulls fan, I'm happy that uh, Derek is having this experience. And I agree with you guys that I think that these dudes are going to play basketball. I talked to all of them today, or a number of the guys today, about, you know, what was going through their mind when they saw Paul George get hurt, when they saw DeMarcus get hurt today. And all of them basically said the same thing, which is that, you know, we're going to play basketball and we know uh, the inherent risks that come with the game. And this is what we do. DeMar, or DeMar DeRozan compared it to going outside during a rainstorm. Like, there's the chance you could get hit with lightning, but it's probably unlikely and you just hope it doesn't happen. So I think that that's sort of the common mind frame uh, between all these guys. You can't really play basketball with it in the back of your head. They're so conditioned to going 0 to 100 basically all the time that it's tough for them to scale it back, even in sort of exhibition or scrimmage settings like these. You know, I have something to just quickly condense this whole conversation into a single sentence. If Charlie can plank, Andre can play. <laughs> That's a good point. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, Ricky, thanks again for joining us. I know you have to run, uh, but it was really interesting to, to just get that firsthand account of how things went today. If you had to guess, you know, as a parting thought, if you had to guess right now, if, if Drummond ends up making the team or, or if Plumlee, I know you said that there's Drummond is probably facing an uphill battle. But but if you had to, if you had to put odds on this, what what percent chance do you think that Drummond has right now? Well, following the Cousins injury, I think it's greater than it was originally. Maybe I'll say a thirty percent chance or so. Uh, but I I would say to put the positive spin on this, the experience of the training camps and the practices probably even outweigh the experience of being on the actual team because this team's going to go through and just smoke everyone before Brazil and before Spain. It's really going to be blowouts and uh, I think the real high level competition is probably in the scrimmages and in the practices themselves which Drummond has been a key part of. So if Drummond makes the team or not I still think it's been a pretty positive experience for him. All right. well thanks again. We'd love to have you on again sometime. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Ricky. All right, we're back. Thanks again to Ricky O'Donnell. You can find his stuff over at bloggable.com and also sbnation.com. Uh, it covers all things NBA and college hoops. Uh, right now, I know we talked Greg Monroe to death last week, uh, but since we posted the podcast, there is the big news that it looks like Greg Monroe, um, at least his representation, is saying that he will actually sign the qualifying offer uh, he hasn't yet. There's actually no reason for him to do it yet until the deadline later in October. But as of right now, he's saying, hey, I'm just going to sign the qualifying offer. It's roughly $5.5 million, and after that, he'll become an unrestricted free agent next year, potentially paving his way to, to leave Detroit. Um, although, you know, there's obviously incentive for him to, to stay next summer. We'll be able to pay him more than any other team. But let's, uh, you know, I, I'm curious, Mike, just, just tell me, do you think – do you think he's still bluffing right now, or do you think he's actually going to do this? You know, I can't really say one way or the other. Um, and I wish I didn't feel that way. But uh, it's, it's gotten to this point where you can't say, really, if he's going to take it or if he's not. Um, I do feel that it is genuine posturing on behalf of his agent. I don't think it's a serious threat. Uh, but, you know, we'll see how that plays out over the next, you know, two and a half months or, or a month and a half. Yeah, I definitely don't think that there's any, you know, real threat to it. If you look back at the Rodney Stuckey uh, 
drama back when uh, Tom Gora's just bought the team, same kind of thing happened. There were threats of, you know, asking for sign-in trades or threats that, you know, he didn't want to be with the team. There were threats that he was going to take the qualifying offer. Uh, it was all negotiating tactic. And I think that's the same situation that's going on right now. Fans are seeing it the way they want to see it. You know, some people see it as, you know, a, a sure sign that he wants to leave and a sure sign that he won't be with the team much longer. And other people are seeing it as, you know, what I see it as, which is posturing. And who knows? Could be either way. But uh, in terms of whether or not he will still be with the team, you know, a few years from now, I don't think we know anything differently than we knew a week ago. It's just, you know, a newly issued threat. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a good way of phrasing it. You know, until he actually signs it, then, then we just don't know. So you can tell us that you're going to sign it, but, you know, if that's what you're going to do, then do it. You know, and until then, it really is a negotiating ploy. Either the Pistons up their offer or, or they find this mythical sign-and-trade for someone who's willing to, to give them the max. But until it actually happens, then, then you know, I'll, I'll, I'll basically believe it when I see it. Because as I, as I repeated you know, over and over last week, it's just so much money to leave on the table. And it's not just in terms of your annual salary in which you can get uh, down the road. It's just, you're going to have a hard time making up that $10 million plus or or it's not quite ten million, maybe about eight million dollars that you're you're going to lose this year. You'll never get that back. You'll be a year later in your career. You'll never get it back. So we'll see. Uh, but but Kevin, what's your take on this? Well, I certainly agree with the mathematics of the situation. It, it, it would be, in my impression, a disastrous decision on his part to do this. And I'm less. I, I'd be less concerned if I were him about the risk of injury. Uh, you know, e- even if he does injure himself, it's not going to diminish his value that much unless it's a certifiable career ender uh but the possibility with all the moving parts that his perceived contributions will decline whether it's points per game or rebound the counting stats that still tend to drive contracts in the nba uh i think he runs a lot of risk of falling in those areas and that could really take down his overall contract value Although, having said that, I'm not quite as sanguine as uh, you both are. At a certain point, when it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you start to think it's a duck. And there is clearly some measure of hostility. I, I mean, we don't know anything, but it, it appears he's not thrilled about the idea of re-signing with the Pistons. I don't get the impression that that's his his first priority, or even that the Pistons are his first choice, that doesn't mean he's going to leave millions and millions and millions of dollars on the table, but it does make me wonder if he would do something that's not necessarily in his best interest, especially if, in all likelihood, it's only going to cost him a few million dollars or make him a few million dollars. If he feels that it's a small potatoes decision, uh, he might be more likely to make it, and that, that would be bad news for us. You know, one other you know, small development since last week, uh, since we last talked about this. So Greg Monroe, he, was out, uh, he, he, was in, he spent much of his summer in Africa doing, um, you know, very, I think it was Basketball Without Borders, doing various uh, camps, things like that. So he, he had basically been offline, so to speak, right? And, and he seemed to have a little bit of a, of a Twitter renaissance when he started – uh, started replying to people and started interacting with some more people. And he kind of made some waves when somebody asked him, hey, how come you haven't, you didn't sign that contract offer? And he actually, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, it's not true. There was never an offer. So I'm, I'm really curious what to make of that. Like, 
is is he actually saying that the Pistons the Pistons haven't made an offer at all towards him? They haven't made I, I believe it was in reference to the to the five year sixty million. Or is he is he maybe is, is he out of the picture? Is he letting his agent handle all this? And he does he just not know? Um, I, I don't think any of us can act, well none of us can definitively answer that question. But I did think it was a really curious development for him to basically come out and deny uh, that there there actually was an offer made. So you know maybe maybe that's just because they've talked about the frameworks of an offer and they didn't specifically make a concrete offer. But I do think that that kind of speaks a little bit to the the possibility of hostility that you mentioned kevin the fact that he would just publicly put that out there you know it it, it is a little curious you know it, and it does not sound like a player who necessarily wants to mend fences and wants to to come back yeah the tone that i received from those tweets is that he feels disrespected uh he doesn't feel as though he has been given an offer or that the Pistons are working with him. Uh, that's my reading between the lines. It's not a sort of neutral, this is all speculation at this point. It's sort of saying, I can't take an offer that hasn't been given. And that has a certain tone to it, in my estimation. Yeah. And, you know, we saw a little about a little bit about this with, uh, you know, to, to change sports just slightly. I, I don't know if, how much you guys pay attention to baseball, but there was a situation when Joe Nathan made a, a gesture to the fans uh, after last night's game. And, you know, I think one with the stick, right? <laughs> yeah, one with the chin where he kind of, you know, made the motion with his chin to the fans. And so, oh, gotcha. oh you're talking about, uh, oh, yeah, baseball. There's a stick involved. There's a they, they, there's a little hill that they, they throw things from. It's. Hot yeah. dogs and such. Yeah, yeah, lots of hot dogs. It's, uh, it's, okay. it's basically the gist of the sport. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it kind of reminded me. A, there's a little bit of a similarity, just that, and sometimes it's sometimes as fans are like feelings that we may have towards certain players, and or, or, or maybe situations that players are in. You know, it's really easy to to express these feelings and and to. to it's, it's really easy to, to look at the performance of a player or look at the, in, in Monroe's case, for the longest time, it was just the, like his silence on a situation and, and make almost like character assumptions about them. And, and I think like with this, you know, maybe the, the touch of bitterness that we heard from Monroe and, and the clear bitterness that we saw from Joe Nathan, it's a reminder that like, hey, like these, these athletes, they're not, they don't live in a bubble. Like they do realize everything that, that people are saying about them. Uh, you know, it, these are actual slights. You know, they have they have feelings, right? Like no one likes to be to have all these bad things said about them. So, I I do wonder, and we you know I don't want to repeat too much from last week's podcast, but but like I said before, like this this is just a negotiation right now, and and it's kind of unfair for fans, you know, to to hold it against Monroe until it really plays itself out. You know, it's it's really easy to to talk about other people's money, uh, so to speak. But I don't know. That's just one thing. I you know I don't want to to get on my pulpit and tell fans how to react. But, you know, the one thing that I would just say, you know, is people just have to realize, like, it's it's not personal. It's not personal at all. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I do actually want to touch on, on the tweets and uh, Monroe's uh, feelings towards the team. I think when I read those tweets and I read some of the reports, uh, you know, that he's actually spoken about, I wouldn't say his animosity is necessarily targeted towards the team, but the press in general. And this goes back quite a ways. This goes back to, you know, prior to the trade deadline when he made a comment about, you know, uh, you can put 
the word source before or after any statement and people will think it's true. And, you know, he, he's basically all these comments. It seems like who he's most fed up with is the press who's reporting these things. Because essentially the press is playing a game of telephone here. You know, they don't have exact quotes directly from Stan Van Gundy, as far as we know, or the, the new GM, Bowen. Um, and it's Bowen, right? Uh, Jeff Bauer. Bauer. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, we don't have exact quotes from, from either of these guys. And, you know, we don't have exact quotes from Monroe on, on this whole process. So I think a lot of these people, like, you know, Vince Ellis does a great job, but I don't think he's actually able to get exact amounts directly from the people that you know, are making the decisions here. So he's basically trying to wean information out of them. And what he reports may not be an exact dollar amount. And if it's not an exact dollar amount, that's easy for Monroe to say, no, that's not true. And I think throughout this process, who Monroe has been most fed up with in his responses has been the media, not so much the team. I'd agree with you. I'd agree with you there. And and that's a really good point about, I mean, fans are just so desperate to get to get any inside information. And so, whenever there's whenever there's these reports with a with you know quote unquote a source close to the situation, you know one thing I wish was possible, and I comp- I absolutely completely understand why it's not from a reporter's perspective, but but one thing that I do wish was possible was that when these reports are given, I wish it was there could be a little bit more clarity on what the source's agenda is, right? Like, is this coming from the player side? Is this coming? Is this source close to the negotiation? Is this uh, an employee of the franchise is this someone who's representing Monroe? Like what? Everybody has an agenda, and when you're when you only hear one side of the story, a lot of times it's possible to read something and then just make an educated guess to yourself. Like hmm, I bet that came from the agent, you know, or I bet this, you know, came from the other side. But but it's not a, it's never explicitly said. And like I you know I just want to reiterate, I think the world of Vince and Vince. I I think Detroit probably has the best beat writers in the entire NBA. So I, I, this isn't any kind of statement against them because I think that, I mean, this is just a, a fact of nature for, for all sports, not even just NBA. And Agreed. I, I yep. understand why you can't do it, but when you don't do it, you're basically forcing readers to make assumptions and, and try to put it into context that, that, is, that isn't always there. Right. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think we're lucky to have the reporting that we do. And Vincent Ellis does a great job, and I think he's reporting as much as he can report without crossing any lines and boundaries or giving up any information that he's not at liberty to do. So I, I think we're lucky, but, you know, it does leave us to speculate um, to the level that we are actually right now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and to be, I mean, to be completely fair, I, I, I should say that I think we, as in the, the writers and editors for Detroit Bad Boys, like we pro- we probably do play a little bit of a factor in this too, uh, because we do we certainly amplify every little bit of news. Uh, we amplify every tweet. You know, we we try to basically collect as much information that's out there and present it to the readers. And sometimes by doing so, you know, when it's the dead of August and it's months before there's actual NBA basketball to be played again, you know, maybe we're we're putting too much emphasis on something unintentionally putting too much emphasis on, on a little scrap of news. And, and so I, I certainly do take, uh, or I certainly do recognize the part that I play on this. I don't, I don't want to, the whole media landscape is, is a really interesting, it's a really interesting uh, puzzle how, how everybody kind of fits together. And, and certainly Detroit Bad Boys and other blogs like us, um, we certainly do play a part in that in some form or fashion. 
Well, the alternative to that is the thing with the stick and the ball and the hot dog. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, you can. Only, I don't understand how they do that for right. 162 games a year. <laughs> well, I, I want to challenge that uh, that position a little bit in that I uh, what I perceive is that he's frustrated by the process and when you have a free agent that you want to resign, the fact that he is frustrated by any component of the process, whether he thinks someone else is leaking, I mean, if he doesn't know the source of the leaks and he's frustrated with the press for just going forward with them, he's probably directing his frustration to the team to a certain extent. And I, when you have a guy who is looking at a $60 million payday, and he's frustrated, that worries me a lot. Uh, and that tells me that he, he's certainly strongly entertaining other ideas about where he could go. So not to be the pessimist here, I think there's some things we can read into it. There's certainly some things in terms of concrete numbers, etc., that we cannot. But I am starting to worry quite a bit. What, one, one thing that I did see in in one of the USA Today reports, there's the, the two articles about this when the news broke, one with just the news and one more of a fully fleshed out story. And, and then the second story, there was something that I thought was really interesting, and I don't even know if, if we emphasize this perhaps as much as we should have on the site. It mentioned that Greg Monroe received two max contract offers from teams that fell through because they were not able to complete a sign-and-trade with the Pistons. Obviously, we're not talking about an offer sheet because it sounds like perhaps, and I'm absolutely reading between the lines, these were teams that didn't have the cap space and they needed to do a sign-and-trade for it to happen. But allegedly, reportedly, he had two max offers. And so that might be why if he it was either, whether this actually happened or he was led to believe this or whatever the case, but if he's under the impression that there are two teams willing to give him the max, I can understand why he would feel slighted by the Pistons not willing to, to, to pay that themselves. That said, going back to what we were just talking about, I read that report and my first impression was, this is quite clearly coming from David Falk. This is quite clearly coming from Greg Monroe's agent. That's obviously not something the Pistons would, would put out there. And it's also something that it looked like, you know, not to um, uh, not to, to, to say that USA Today is being used as a mouthpiece, but to me, I kind of question that. I, I kind of question whether or not there are actually two teams out there willing to give them the max. Is that just you know, propaganda that, that, that his agent's putting forth? Or, or, do you, or do you think that actually happened? I mean, it, it's too difficult to even try to guess who those teams might be. I don't know. I, I thought that was really interesting. And, and you know, it, it's, it's certainly a new twist that the entire summer we, we were never, uh, it, was, it never leaked until now. And then it was just kind of slid in there, slid into this article almost as a, as a throwaway line. But what do you guys think of that? I think actually it could be, could be pretty likely. Um, you've got to imagine that a team that is willing to do a sign and trade is probably taking less of a risk than a team that has the cap space would be able to extend him a max offer sheet. Um, a team that is interested in doing a sign-and-trade can part with contracts that they've already you know, signed and they may not be totally happy with. Who knows what the return was going to be for, for that deal? Um, but, I mean, if you're, if you're any capped-out team and you need help in the front court, of course, you'd want to part with you know players that are on your team that are underperforming or you know costly to bring on a player like Monroe. Even if you're going to pay him a max offer, you know, even if you're going to pay him a max salary, whether he's worth it or not. 
trying to think of an example. Uh, in, you know, the Nets even. You know, the Nets could have made a, an, a sign and trade offer to uh, to Detroit for Greg Monroe, um, parting with some large contracts. They just couldn't have been very attractive to Detroit. But if it's a team that had the space available to sign them outright, I think they might see that as a greater risk because then you know they're not ridding themselves of any contracts in the process. So I think it's actually pretty likely that teams could have made an offer for Monroe uh, by sign and trade. But who knows if it was anything that was going to be attractive to Detroit or not? Well, look at the Pacers and Hibbert. I mean, that it, I, there were reports that they're shopping him. Surely they inquired about another guy who might be a max contract they could get in return and get Hibbert off their hands. Hibbert is was a mistake, I think, on their part. I think they realized that. And so the opportunity to get a young big who might have potential to blossom into something else by the time George comes back uh, it is certainly has a lot of appeal for them. And, yeah, that would cost them – it would be a longer contract, but it would cost them essentially nothing. That actually is a good segue, Kevin, talking about the Pacers, the the report that they, they're looking into moving Hibbert. I think the Pacers are in a situation right now where losing George for a year, losing Lance Stevenson, signing signing our good friend Rodney Stuckey to, to the minimum deal. I think they're basically at a point where they're they're thinking, oh, are we going to have to rebuild? Are we rebuilding right now? Um, so so the the segue that I that I wanted to talk about real briefly, NBA schedule comes out. Everyone's thinking. You know, taking a look at the schedule, thinking uh, now you finally have a something concrete in front of you to start guessing how, how teams are going to do. Um, so I'm just I'm really curious to see how the the Paul George situation, uh, whether or not they're able to move Hibbert. Where do you see the Pistons right now in the Central? Where do you see uh, the Pacers? You know, how do you think this is all going to shake out? Well, I, I certainly don't think we're going to win the division. Um, I, I was disappointed looking at the schedule to realize that we have to play both the Cavaliers and the Spurs this year. Um, that just seems really <laughs> unfair. Uh, you know, if I look at the schedule, that really doesn't impact us too much. Obviously, uh, the Pistons are not going to be a priority in terms of, what is it, 22 back-to-back. Uh, we're not going to be a priority in terms of national recognition. So uh, that's not a surprise. Uh, I think in terms of the Central... How the Central shakes out is probably, and I hate to say this, largely irrelevant to how the Pistons are going to do. I don't think they're going to inform the conversation of who's going to be at the top of the division. Although I I, I think the Pacers could certainly be at the bottom. Uh, I think they are in a world of hurt right now, and it's amazing the degree to which uh, in one year, with a couple of unwise decisions in my estimation uh they've fallen but um it, it's hard for me to get excited about division rankings when you know i, I don't think we're going to be pushing for m- one of the top two spots one thing uh you mentioned how how we, how odd it is to see a team fall from grace so quickly <laughs> the last time i can think of that happening was maybe it was the pacers when uh, they were decimated by suspensions and and all that stuff with the the whole malice at the palace. Um, yeah, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a hard fall for them. You mentioned twenty two back to backs. That's the most in the league. Nobody else. Uh, there's six other teams that have twenty one. Nobody has has twenty two. The large one of the big reasons that so many teams have have so many back to backs. There's an eight day break for the All Star game. So it'll be it'll be interesting. NBA. 
the release, the, the schedule release for NBA, it's a little bit different than, say, for example, NFL, when everyone gets super excited because guess what? NBA, you play everybody in the league. You play everybody in the league more than once. Uh, it's just the order. But I don't know if you guys have had a chance to really look at the schedule too hard, but do you have any, any, any opening thoughts on, on just you know, how, they, how you, you think they're going to be able to do right out of the gate? I personally feel incredibly ambivalent about the whole thing, and I know I shouldn't, but you know, after how many straight losing seasons of you know, repeated turmoil and difficulties, I usually get really excited this time of year, but right now, with the way this summer has gone, with you know, the lack of resolution for Greg Monroe and for you know, Josh Smith, it's a little difficult to get excited. Uh, you know, it's been, I can't remember an offseason that was as dismal as this one has been. I mean, no, no first-round draft pick, no significant free agent signings. I mean, with respect to, you know, Jody Meeks and, and a few of the other guys. But it just doesn't really seem like, you know, there's too much to be excited about. So I was hoping that we'd have some big story leading into the season that would give us momentum, um, you know, from a fan standpoint, to look at the schedule and be excited about how things were going to turn out. But the only thing that I can really think of that will be interesting to see how it plays out is Stan Van Gundy's impact in the start of the year. So in looking at the schedule, I didn't really spend much time looking at it. I should have, but... You know, I feel like I'm a little justified in not being as excited this year. I the the one sort of piece of analysis I would give there is with the Magic, Van Gundy's teams were always ready to play. I mean, they had an absurd preseason record. Uh, they had several eight and zero preseasons. They tended to weather the storms of back to backs relatively well. Uh, I don't have uh, at my disposal exactly how well they did in certain situations, but uh, so that could be. I mean, that that would be something that would help us certainly if we have a league leading number of back to backs, uh, and so that would be something to look at. I, I don't think this has been as dismal as other off seasons, insofar as we didn't make a catastrophic mistake uh, within <laughs> minutes of. The, the start of the off season. So, and one thing I one thing I like, and one thing that has been a source of optimism, is that there's a game plan here. I mean, Van Gundy understands the NBA landscape. He understands what maybe, if you look at the sort of Moneyball era that started in baseball 15 years ago, where like, okay, it's about getting on base, it's about hitting home runs. Three pointers are really important. It's the most valuable shot in the NBA. Having players on your roster who can hit them, even if they're just pushing your rotation guys for minutes, I think that's a valuable insight on his part. If he felt like he couldn't make a thunderstorm right away, uh, I'm somewhat okay with that. I would have liked to see more motion on Josh Smith. I would like to see Monroe not uh, dangling in the wind. But there is more reason for me for optimism than there's been the last few seasons where I felt like, at best, the game plan is largely arbitrary. So let me just get this straight. Kevin Sawyer, optimistic. In terms of the, the, <laughs> the broader future, I, I don't think we're going to win a lot of games this year. I mean, I, I, if we won 29 games this year, I would not be surprised. Uh and I certainly would be surprised if we finished above 500. But in terms of how I see Van Gundy proceeding, I have good reasons for optimism. Makes sense to me. 
I like that. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree too, and that's a funny way that you put it, Kevin. The mere fact that they didn't go backwards means that they're making progress, even if all they did really was tread water. And I, and I honestly think they, they did a little bit better than tread water this, this offseason. It wasn't exciting, but the pieces that they did get quite clearly fit part of his plan. And I, I don't think this team has had an identity in years. Um, I think they tried to force an identity on it with, hey, we have a really big front court. Uh, but that just that was a flop last year. That wasn't an identity. That was just a, a pure disaster. But this is the first time that I think that even without seeing them play a single game, uh, you know, you can look at the the roster and the acquisitions and you say, wow, there is a plan here. You know, Mangani does have have uh, ambitions for for building a clear identity. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty optimistic too. It is hard to get too excited about the schedule in August. Uh, one thing that I do like to see is that they. You know, four of their first six are at home. So if they are going to get out on the right foot, it's at least going to be, you know, in the comfort of home. And and, and they're not going to have, you know, in years past, um, I think last year they, they opened up at home for a bit. But I know in, in years past it used to be that they would play like seven of eight on the road or, or something along that. So this, I think they're they're at least getting a fighting chance to, to open the year uh, and set the tone right away. But, yeah, no, I, I count me in as optimistic. I'm always optimistic and and you know, this time of year. I, I really, I, I'm embarrassed to think about all the good things I was saying last year about Josh Smith and Brandon Jennings. Um, but, but no, I, I'm excited. Uh, well, that's actually, you know, speaking of some of the additions that uh, Van Gundy has made this summer, uh, that's actually a good segue to, to the, our final segment uh, when we talk about our favorite fan post of the week. Uh, and this week, we have a, a relatively newcomer to Detroit Bad Boys, uh, a, a reader named with the username um, Detroit Kentucky 2020, it's uh, he basically had a fan post that talked about uh, Jody Meeks and how his cha- how his game has evolved since college. Uh, he he's a uh, Kentucky fan that's been watching Jody Meeks his entire career and, and just kind of pointed out the growth that he's already had and, and and what it might bode for the future. One thing that I did think was really interesting in this fan post, um, and you can see it right in his username. I honestly wasn't really aware that there's this subset of Kentucky fans that identified as, as also Pistons fans dating back to, to Tayshaun Prince. Uh, it just never, I never quite made that connection that, that there was the, uh, this large contingent. But it's interesting to me. I welcome them. Thanks for reading, guys. It's, it's uh, glad to have you. I thought it was an excellent fan post and a great introduction from uh, Detroit, Kentucky 2020. I really enjoyed reading it. It was interesting. It was nice to get a take on Jody Meeks beyond, you know, the little research that I've done on him so far this summer. Um, and, you know, from somebody that watched him in Kentucky, it's it's pretty cool. And it, it like you said, Matt, it's exciting to know, uh, to kind of have discoveries like these about our community and about where people come from. And, and you know, listening to and reading their, their own unique insight is, is pretty exciting. So I thought that was great. And I hope he sticks around and shares a bunch more fan posts just like that one. If you're listening... And you're not a regular commenter. Well, I encourage you to do so to, to make an account and to comment because you really do. It, it's really fun to, to kind of get to know some of the people. And, and you know, obviously last year we had uh, Kathy from uh, uh, Peyton Siva, big Louisville fan. And then um, I don't know if we have a lot of UConn fans, but you would imagine that we probably should. Historically, Detroit's been a very UConn heavy team. But uh, mm-hmm. but no, it's 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 always fun to get to to get to know the readers. And you know, I've said it probably you know a hundred times that it sounds cliche now, but. The, the collective wisdom of, of the, the commenters and the readers of Detroit Bad Boys is always a hundred times you know more intelligent than anything that 
uh, any one of us can, can can write down as an as an article. I always see it, I always see every every article that we write. I always see it more as a conversation starter than this is the definitive take on the on the subject. So I completely agree with that. That's a great way to put it. All right. Well, that about does it. Uh, thanks for joining me, guys. Uh, this was fun. Hopefully, we can have you guys on again. Uh, we have a lot of writers for Detroit Bad Boys, so I think it'll be fun to just kind of bring on a rotating cast of characters and obviously uh, at some point in time uh, start start bringing on some of the readers too, start having some call-in shows. Sounds great. Thanks for having us, Matt. Yeah, sure thing. Later. Yeah, thanks. Any closing thoughts? None for me. <laughs> All right, I'll edit out that. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just take that part out. That was awkward.